0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, a podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. My name's David Clark, and thanks for joining us for this episode. In this episode, I'm speaking with Christopher Joy of Smarter Money. Chris has been a widely regarded analyst, investor, and advisor to governments, banks, and investors alike. I think you'll really enjoy this podcast as we speak about his strategy that he manages for many of my clients, being enhanced cash, as well as the outlook for the Australian and international economies and some of the political risks um, and how they may play out. Please don't forget to send your feedback. You can email me at david.clark at And remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. And we emphasise that the podcast is not and is not designed to be specific advice or recommendations. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Chris Joy, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. It's great to have you along. Chris, look, could you start off just giving us a bit of background to your history and what you're doing, how how you've come to be running the strategy you are today?
1: Yeah, I um, went to school in Sydney, um, Victoria and the UK, studied at Sydney University. Um, Malcolm Turnbull actually hired me out of Sydney University and put me into the M&A team at Goldman Sachs. I started in London, uh, did a couple of years there, worked for the Reserve Bank of Australia, um, then got a scholarship to study at Cambridge University for a PhD um, in England. And whilst I was there, um, I was asked by the Prime Minister at the time, John Howard, to look into the demand side and the supply side of the Aussie housing market. Wrote a big report on that subject. Then actually started my first business at Cambridge University in England. It was a funds management business um, focusing on um, what are known as asset-backed securities. Um, it was quite an innovative business. We had a very big patent portfolio, very IP intensive, um, and we also had a big team of PhDs. I sold that business to Macquarie Bank uh, in 2010. During the global financial crisis, I also advised um, Prime Minister Rudd and um, his team on a response to the crisis, and they ended up uh, investing $15 billion into this idea that I put to them to buy mortgage-backed securities. Um, and made hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of profit on that trade. Um, I set up this business, Coolabar Capital, and uh, our retail brand Smarter Money Investments in 2011, and we run about three billion today. Um, We are a specialist uh, short-term fixed interest manager offering a range of sort of cash plus 1% through to cash plus 6% strategies. Um, Very similar to my first business in the sense, highly analytical, very intellectual property intensive. Um, team has uh, you know, multiple PhDs, eight analysts, four portfolio managers, but I've still kept my head in the policy game. So I came up with an, actually the, the current Prime Minister asked me how to reduce the cost of small business borrowing about uh, nine months ago, and I suggested the government invest in small business loans. So They put $2 billion behind that idea, um, and I've recently proposed that the government allow the Future Fund to compete in super, um, and uh, we'll see whether they embrace that idea. So
0: fast forward today, and via Smarter Money, you're for clients of ours and mine at the moment. You're managing a strategy um, called Cash Plus.
1: What does that mean for the layperson? Yeah, so that's such a good question because um, I actually don't think many people know what cash really is uh, in an investment context. Mm-hmm. Because most folks think of cash as a bank deposit, but if you put money into a bank deposit, like the Macquarie Cash Management Account, the CMA. Um, you know, that's actually the cheapest money a bank will ever raise. So that currently pays about you know, 1.4% interest. Um, and the best rate of return the bank will ever get in a borrowing sense is off their retail depositors. But the banks are actually much more complicated beasts than that, they have these complex capital structures. You've got equity, and then sitting above equity, you know, the stocks, the shares that trade on the ASX, you've got things called hybrids, then you've got subordinated bonds, Above the subordinated bonds, you've got senior bonds. Then you've got deposits, and above the deposits, you've got things called secured covered bonds. And generally speaking, all the interest rates on those assets will be higher than what you'll get in a lay sort of at-call variable rate savings account. So if you're lazy with your money, um, you can put it into a deposit, but if you wanna be more sophisticated, and if you want your cash to work harder for you, you can build up a portfolio where you're not just with one bank. In our portfolios, we've typically got 10 to 20 different banks. Um, you're not just in the deposits, but you're in the you know, super senior bonds, the senior bonds, the subordinated bonds, and maybe some of the hybrids. Um, you understand that the difference between a deposit and a bond is that bond's traded, and that's crucial because it gets revalued every single day. Mm-hmm. It's funny, when we invest in a cash deposit, the money sits in the account, and we assume it's riskless. But it's actually not. There is a government guarantee up to the first 250k. But for many of your clients, they've got a lot more cash than that. And above the 250k, they're taking pure bank risk. But they're not revaluing it. It's kind of like um, having a property. Uh, You own a home, you don't really see the value of that property trade every day until you actually sell it. And you can sometimes get a bit of a fright. And the same is technically true with deposits. It is possible that banks can go bust. and and at various points in time, um, if we were to mark to market those deposits, their values would fluctuate quite widely. We own bonds that are safer than deposits, the the secured cover bonds. They pay better interest rates often than deposits, but their value will change every day. So the the quid pro quo is um, you you can go through periods where uh, you get that mark to market volatility, um, but over the medium term, you should do better by lending to banks across their capital structure than if you just restricted them to their, their pure at-call cash. So it's about personal comfort and, and tolerance and, and sophistication. So in a practical sense, the you know at the moment,
0: if you have your money at-call at the bank, you might be getting that one and a half with a Macquarie CMA or similar. Um, but if you use a, an investment structure such as
1: yours in enhanced cash, you can expect what type of return? Yeah, so the current weighted average interest rate on our bonds and our cash is about 3.5% right now. And our target return in this particular strategy, which we're talking about today, which is smarter money, higher income, is between one5 and 3% above the RBA cash rate. Right? Mm-hmm. So we're sort of targeting you know 3 to 4.5%. Um, and um, yeah, so that, that, dem- that current yield or that current weighted average interest rate of 3.5% demonstrates that by diversifying across the capital structure and not just restricting yourselves to deposits, you're gonna get those better returns. There is another way we can improve the return experience, um, and that's uh, a much more complex exercise, and it basically involves us hunting around for the best possible interest rates on these securities, and particularly looking for securities that are paying excess interest, or what we call excess spread. So the, the analogy I like to use is, you know, we all know that sometimes UBank will offer great specials, or an ING direct might offer a great special, and you'll see it every so often. There'll be a you know two point nine percent TD rate. UBank's uh, wholly owned by NAB, it's NAB risk. We're all comfortable with NAB as a risk, um, so a lot of people will hit that rate, and they'll buy that two point nine percent, say, twelve you know, month TD, and then when UBank gets sufficient money, they'll drop that rate. Now, if that term deposit was a bond and you bought it at 2.9%, and then you sold it a week later at, say, 2.5%, you'd actually get a capital gain, and you can augment your returns that way. So we have a table in our presentations where we look at our last 2,300 bond sales, where we bought and sold sold the bond. The interest rates we've earned on average since uh, 2012 on those 2,300 bonds, which are basically A-rated floating rate bank bonds, um, has been about 3.8% per annum. Right? So kind of similar to our current weighted average interest rate in the portfolio today. However, before fees, our total return has been about 8.5% premium. And that's because we've been very focused. What we do is we revalue every bond in the market every day, and we risk adjust it. And we're trying to figure out what is the right interest rate for this for CBA to pay us on this three-year floating rate security. It's kind of like what is the fair rate of interest that for you bank to pay us on that 12-month TD? The market interest rate might be two and a half. If you get 2.9, you grab it, and then ideally we sell it for two and a half. And that's where we really specialize. That's how we're going to augment those returns. We're not going to be right all the time. We'll go through periods where we think something's cheap. So we buy it at 2.9% and then it jumps to 3.3%. So for us, actually, this happened in November um, where we owned a bunch of cheap bonds and cash and we thought returns were going to be great, but the interest rates jumped even further. So we actually bought more and then what's happened is the market has normalized over December, January, and February. So in February, in the month to date, we're having... Um, thus far our best month ever in the last seven years. right? Because that 3.3 interest rate has dropped back down to 2.9 and it's now heading to 2.5 and we're basically starting to accrue significant capital gains. And the same thing happened in January. So that, that often uh, materializes that, that shock that we saw in November when you have got a range of external events and markets are forced into a sort, of, a, a somewhat more um,
0: irrational state. So how should clients think about the risk involved in this type of strategy? What, what are the type of downsides they could experience? And or I guess historically what have been you know, a monthly or quarterly poor performance, for instance. What, yeah. should, what should they be prepared to endure?
1: Yeah, so I, I kind of take it a step back and I think about it from first principles from a portfolio construction perspective. And we find out a lot of our clients will have pure cash, so they'll have some deposits and then they'll have some cash plus, as we've described. Because they know that through the cycle, over a 12 to 24 month basis, certainly over a, you know, a, a medium term holding horizon, there's a very, very high probability you're gonna beat cash. Um, and certainly, like on a rolling 12 month basis, Um, our worst ever experience after fees is still around cash, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But month to month, as I mentioned, if you have a whole range of shocks and suddenly the global investment community is saying, we require much higher interest rates on Aussie bank bonds and we've got them in the portfolio, then the value of those bonds will decline. So um, our worst ever month uh, in the last eight years was in February 2016. And um, in that month, we had a mark-to-market Um, reduction in the value of the portfolio of about 0.4%, right? Mm -hmm. But in the next 12 months, we had our best 12 months ever. And we actually, so what happened, same, exactly the same scenario as we saw in November. Uh, In February, was actually the world was concerned that Deutsche Bank was going to fail. And, you know, Chinese equities had fallen 50%. The price of iron ore had plummeted. The uh, price of oil had plummeted. And global investors were, like us, were demanding that the banks pay crazy high interest rates on their bonds. So we bought as many as we could, but at the same time, the mark-to-market value of those bonds actually fell in the month a little bit. Um, but that then uh, embedded in the portfolio these ultra-high interest rates, which as they normalised over the next 12 months, gave us sensational returns. And, and we've seen a replay of that in uh, to, to a certain extent and, and not as severe in 2018, where generally uh, spreads or the interest rates required of banks have been increasing, in a lot of cases irrationally, So what's actually interesting, I mean, I love talking about this, is if you look at something like the four major banks, in 2007, the four major banks, their equity capital ratios were about 5%, um, and they were leveraged uh, much, much higher than they are today. So the equity capital ratios today for the four major banks are all around 11%. So you had a huge deleveraging, and that's very good for depositors and very good for bondholders because you're reducing the risk of those businesses. And that has forced the four major banks' returns on equity to decline. That's bad for shareholders, but great for bondholders, right? And the Royal Commission is interesting in this context as well because the Royal Commission is, again, terrible for shareholders because all the banks are becoming very risk-averse. They're gonna have much lower growth. They're getting out of all their non-core businesses, so wealth, advice, insurance, their offshore operations, they're selling, and they're just focusing on a very simple utility-like core activity, which is savings and loans. So we we forecast in twenty fifteen, um, you know, CBA was trading at three times book value, and I wrote in the AFR. I am an AFR columnist, this is an aside. Um, I wrote in the AFR that CBA's 18% return on equity would converge towards its cost of equity. And its cost of equity is around 11 12%. CBA reported yesterday that 18% ROE has now fallen to below 14%. And you're seeing that, and what that means is as the return on equity converges to the cost of equity, the bank needs to trade near book value. So you've seen the price to book value ratio fall from three times to now one to one and a half times for all four major banks. Again, all bad for equity, but all good for debt and all good for deposits. Because for a creditor, if I own CBA senior bonds, which I do, um, my my worst case scenario is that the bank blows up. I don't care about the upside. I'm just worried about the downside. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, that was a bit of a long-winded response. Um, Mark-to-market volatility is the risk. Uh, The risk is not particularly great um, compared to any other asset class, but you can have a negative month, and we've had negative months in the past, Um, but we tend to um, experience periods of abnormally high returns following those shocks. Chris, lots of our clients will not have held
0: fixed interest in the past. Many of them will have a portfolio of Australian equities and some properties, and in the past, dividend stream off those equities of the banks or blue chip Australians has been sufficient for them and when you know often when we raise fixed interest or enhance cash and strategies like yours to add a bit of balance and diversification of the portfolio we we get met with a little bit of resistance what be your answer to those people as to why they shouldn't hold just or just rely on dividend streams from uh, blue chip equities and well, why you want some fixed interest
1: exposure. Yeah, I come back to the capital structure, and if you own equities, you're at the bottom of the capital structure. If you own their bonds and deposits, you're at the top of the capital structure. And if we think about what happened in the global financial crisis, um, I can actually tell you the statistics, but the four major banks' share prices, they fell 60%. So you might be getting a you an know, uh, unfranked dividend yield off the four majors of you know, 7 or 8%. With franking, it could be substantially higher than that. Um, But if you're treating that as your cash allocation, and then in a short period of time, 60% of that money evaporates, is that gonna make a significant difference um, to your income earning expectations and uh, the destruction of capital? Will that change your way of life? And it could, because a lot of people use cash as an insurance, they use it for liquidity. Um, And I don't think that's a good approximation for a defensive experience. If you move one step up the capital structure to hybrids, um, you know, we, uh, in our Smarter Money, Higher Income strategy, we have a very small allocation to hybrids of around 10% of the portfolio. Um, The hybrid market fell uh, less than half um, what the equity experienced in the global financial crisis. So the peak to trough fall was about 25% versus 60% for the equity. So the hybrids are paying you today uh, fully franked yields of five to six percent, good yields, but they're protecting you significantly on the downside vis-à-vis the ordinary shares. But it's still not cash, right? When you start moving into the senior bonds, I actually did this analysis yesterday for a client, um, and in the global financial crisis, um, Australian investment grade senior ranking floating rate notes never had a rolling uh, negative return on a um, on a uh, 12-month basis. So the rolling uh, 12-month returns were all, always every single day through the global financial crisis above circle 1.5%. You can have that negative month if interest rates jump up and you get that mark-to-market hit. But um, you know, whereas in equities, you were down 50 to 60%, in the senior bonds, you had no negative return. In the hybrids, you did have a negative return. So it's about your risk tolerance. If you're, if you're um, uh, you know, happy having a capital base that can be decimated, and is subject to an enormous amount of volatility, that's fine, then you wanna load up on equities. And a lot of folks believe that if you're under the age of 30 and you've got long-term life expectancy, uh, then you can take a huge amount of equity risk. But for folks who are retiring and who do not want the brain damage associated with equity volatility and who want income stability and security, then you must move up the capital structure. And I personally think it's a big, big mistake um, to assume that cash, sorry, to assume that equities are a surrogate for cash. Sure. Um-
0: so, Chris, given that, can you give us a bit of a summary of your outlook for, um, you know, the the Australian economy and the international economy and what investors are going to be
1: faced with over the next quarter and year? Yeah, we're pretty sanguine. Uh, we've been consistently sanguine actually for the last five years. So, what I find interesting is you always see size. and there'll always always be you know folks who are particularly economists in search of a headline, who have these cataclysmic forecasts. I remember the global head of strategy, I think it was at um, uh, RBS uh, a couple of years ago um, had this report entitled, Sell Everything, and it proved to be the worst, I think it was at the end of 2016, and you know, equity markets and all asset classes you know, proceeded to burn over 2017, and that would have been a bad decision at that time. Um, we were very, in 2018, <clears throat> we were very, very positive on uh, US economic growth, which is crucial for Australia because it's one of our biggest trading partners, but it's also the biggest economy in the world, and we were very positive on Australian economic growth for several reasons. When you look at the US, um, we forecast at the start of 2018 that the unemployment rate would fall to 3.7%, sorry, 3.5%, it fell ultimately to 3.7%. We expected at the start of last year uh, four Fed hikes, we got four Fed hikes. and we expected the Australian unemployment rate to fall below 5.0% at the time, it was almost 6%, and it ultimately did uh, decline to actually 5.0%. We expected an RBA rate hike or two, so one to two uh, hikes last year from the RBA. We didn't get that, but we did get the bank's de facto raising rates, um, which basically did the heavy lifting for the RBA. Um, Other kind of drivers of why we're positive today and why we were positive last year was Um, Commodity prices are elevated. We believe that the Chinese will continue to stimulate their economy to maintain um, internal stability and the uh, primacy of the the CCP. Uh, And we think generally overall global economic growth will um, be robust and um, at trend or better than trend. In April 2017, we said having forecast strong house price growth between 2013 and 2017, we said the housing boom's over. And we were the first mainstream analyst to argue that house prices would fall 10%. Um, they nationally at 8.3% uh, from their uh, peak. So they peaked in September 2017. Uh, we've upgraded our forecast to a 10 to 15% drop, but <clears throat> we believe this is a very um, orderly correction. So you think there's another 6% to go in residential house prices across Australia? Yeah, um, we we lifted the forecast from a ten percent peak to trough decline to fifteen percent mm-hmm. um, for two reasons. Um, the Royal Commission uh, had taken we thought an incorrectly um, tough view on uh, what are known as the responsible lending laws, which forced the banks to tighten credit um, to a, quite an extreme degree. <clears throat> In the final report of the Royal Commission, um, they've backtracked from that, so they haven't taken as intensely negative a view on. Uh, what the responsible lending standards should be, as they did in their interim report. So I think that's positive for housing. Um, The other reason was it became clear after Turnbull was rolled that um, there were much higher probabilities of Labor coming to power. And now Labor are proposing to eliminate negative gearing Mm -hmm. and (coughs) to also increase capital gains tax by 50%. And do away with imputation credit refunds. Yeah, cash refunds for non-taxpayers. who are claiming uh, franking credits or receiving franking credits. Now, what do you think the probability of those three things occurring is? Pretty, listen, I think the election will be much closer than folks think. I think Skymo is actually in with a very good shot of winning. Um, But if we're um, somewhat independent and we look at just simply the betting odds, Mm -hmm. there's a very high probability of Labor coming to power. And then if they come to power, I think all those things come to pass. I think one thing that's not widely understood is Labor has said that if you own an investment property today, you won't be hit by the CGT hike or the negative gearing elimination. So they are arguing that they're effectively protecting existing property investors, and this policy only applies to somebody who buys a property. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also doesn't apply to somebody who buys an off the plan or new property, right? Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that if you're a current owner, when you go to sell that property, you're gonna be selling to somebody who is subject to 50% higher CGT and who can't negatively gear. And the research suggests that removing negative gearing is equivalent to a 23% increase in mortgage (coughs) repayments. So what will happen is, and what is happening right now, is that the value of the assets uh, for all property investors is shrinking because the buyer is gonna price in the impact of CGT and the absence of negative gearing. That also applies to the person buying a new investment property. So you don't think you're immune from the effects of this policy. That's why we went from a, a 10% drawdown to a 15% drawdown. Um, so we're, we're 8.3% down so far. I think we are kind of moved towards 10 to 15%. Um, I think it's likely labour comes to power, but I think it's it's gonna be close, and I think SkyMai is in with a decent shot. Um, <clears throat> in terms of the Aussie economy, And the global economy, again, we're positive definitely for the next quarter and the next 12 months. Um, We're assuming Trump does a deal with Xi on trade. We've argued consistently we think trade will get resolved. Now, uh, it was all looking fine and dandy until last night. Trump said there might be a delay, um, so we'll see what transpires there. We assume that Brexit is resolved on a benign basis. So if we can deal with Brexit and we can deal with trade, then the global economy has a very good chance of performing robustly. The price of iron ore is around $80 US. Very important for Australia, as one of our biggest exports, and the federal budget is basically in balance. So we are no longer (coughs) running large budget deficits, which is quite incredible. We're one of the few OECD OECD countries in the world that is moving into surplus. Um, So we've got tonnes of fiscal policy ammunition. The RBA can cut the cash rate if it needs to. Um, And I think growth will be around trend Um, The only, the the risk to our central case is some crazy stuff that happens offshore, like Trump blows up or something kiboshes the Chinese and or US economies. The second risk is um, that for whatever reason, I don't think this will happen, but the housing market um, correction becomes disorderly. Mm
0: -hmm. Excellent. Christopher, look, really thank thank you and appreciate you for joining us today. Thanks for joining us in Inside the Rope. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting CodaCapital.com.